0: Draw a triangle between Chicago, Indianapolis and St. Louis, and slap bang in the middle is the small farming town of Homer, Illinois. When the railroad arrived just to the south in 1855, they decided to move it. Eighteen teams of oxen hauled 32 buildings over a mile down the road and deposited them beside the new tracks. You'd think that might have been enough excitement for a sleepy spot like Homer, population 1,200. But in 1986, it won a new claim to fame. Teachers in Homer School District walked out on the 17th of October in a protest over pay. The dispute lasted until the end of June. Kids in Homer missed almost the entire school year. Tensions ran high, dividing neighbours. More than half the teachers ended up quitting. Families moved away and home values fell. Two decades later, residents told reporters the town still hadn't fully recovered. It's thought to be the longest teacher strike in US history, and at 156 school days, the longest enforced absence for pupils. Until now. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, the Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, Why is opening schools so tricky? Nearly half America's children are yet to return to the classroom a year after the pandemic began. The president has called it a national emergency. In Chicago, a teacher's strike has been averted with an agreement that younger children will be back in school next month but high schoolers in the city still have no prospect of in-person teaching anytime soon. And Joe Biden has already diluted a pledge to have the majority of schools open within his first 100 days. What are the political lessons for the new administration? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fassman, the U.S. digital editor. Charlotte, what's been going on in New York? From the messages that we've swapped this week, it seems to have been a mixture of sledging and watching the impeachment trial.
1: Is sledging an English term? of which I was unaware until this moment.
0: That's not another one. Is this happening again? What do you call it when you sledging, go down it? A... When
1: I think of sledging, I think of something kind of violent, like someone with a sledgehammer. We call it sledding. No G.
0: It can be violent, but it's largely a peaceful activity that involves sliding down a snowy hill on a <laughs> flat plastic object.
2: What do you call the flat plastic object? Your sledge.
1: That is so weird. John Fasman. did you know that?
2: I thought it was called a lorry. I'm just kidding. No.
1: <laughs> I did put my children not on a sledge, but on a sled um, This on Saturday, which was lovely. But mostly I've been preoccupied with trying to do my work while also watching or listening to what's been going on in the Senate. And it's been a remarkable week in that way. I mean, Jamie Raskin, the lead House manager, is... As cogent as Castor, Trump's attorney was rambling and incoherent, but it's not an impartial jury, you know, that's listening to this set of evidence. It's a group of politicians, so I think we all know what the outcome will be.
2: Indeed, we do. John Fasman, how's your week been? I've been doing much the same thing as Charlotte, um, homeschooling. I think my kids have gone sledding, and I've been watching the impeachment trial. It's just been a grim spectacle. Uh, I have followed the story more closely than most people, I think. And I just didn't fully appreciate how how close we came to just a bloodbath.
1: It was it was designed to be shocking, Raskin's presentation, and it was shocking. You know, you think always that you've already been shocked and then somehow it becomes even more striking than you thought.
0: I found some portions of the video that the Democratic managers showed too appalling and and frightening and ghastly to watch. I mean, it was like a horror movie at times.
1: One of the challenges for Democrats is that they clearly view this as hugely important that, the, as Reskin laid out, that this is about American principles of democracy and the transfer of power and about uh, confirming the basic integrity of elections. And uh, there also is the case that though that is clearly hugely valuable both to Democrats and to many of their constituents, it's not something that affects voters this morning or this afternoon. It's a longer-term question. And Democrats are aware of that, which is why they also want to be pushing forward Biden's recovery package. They want to be talking about issues that affect Americans right now. And Republicans, too, they see this as Democrats distracting in a partisan way from the real business of governing. And what we're going to talk about today is schools, and I think that does remain a hugely pressing issue for voters generally, whether schools are open or closed. And voters who are a very important bases for for each party. You know, Republicans are looking at those moderate suburban voters who went for Democrats this last time around, and they see this as an issue that can help win those voters back. Democrats also have their eyes on moderates in the suburbs, as well as the students in big cities who continue to be schooled at home.
0: It's also the case that while the evidence in the impeachment trial, I think has been pretty convincing and is very shocking. It is, as you say, Charlotte, a foregone conclusion. Uh, Donald Trump's not going to be convicted in his impeachment trial. There won't be enough Republican senators willing to convict him. Meanwhile, as many as 3 million students may have gone without any formal education in the past year in America, and about 20 million haven't been in a classroom. So that's what we're going to be discussing this episode. Tamara gilks is the US policy correspondent for The Economist. She's been writing about the effects of school closures for us.
3: So schools all over the US are closed to in-person schooling. This week, according to Burbio School Opening Tracker, Only 40% of U.S. K-12 students are attending traditional in-person schooling every day. But parents want schools to reopen, especially white parents. So according to the Understanding America study at the University of Southern California, 68% of white parents want their children to return to in-person schooling this academic year. However, that's in comparison to 50% of Hispanic parents and 36% of Black parents.
0: And Tamara, what, in your view, explains that difference in what parents want?
3: I think the racial difference is about the reality of COVID in these communities. So we're seeing that Black and Hispanic communities are facing higher rates of COVID generally. So many parents are afraid to send their children to school. Many families are concerned about the state of the buildings that their children are attending. So many of these schools have, um, are very old and have defunct ventilation systems that can be problematic when we're worried about the spread of COVID.
0: Got it. And what effect are all these school closures in America having on students and and how can we tell?
3: So we've heard many stories about students wanting to return to school, of course. But what we're seeing in the data is that many students are missing from public school entirely. New York City is missing 30,000 pupils this year, which is a 3% decline in enrollment from last year. Los Angeles is missing 19,000 students. That's a 4% decline And Boston is missing 2,000 students. That's a 5% decline compared to last year. So this is a big problem for student learning, obviously. But it's also a problem for school funding. School funding is tied to enrollment. So schools are getting pretty desperate to find their pupils. One superintendent named Sarah Bonzer in Plano, Texas, she was missing 6.5% of her pupils. That was about 4,000 of her students. And to get them back, they called thousands of homes and they ended up getting 1,279 of their pupils back to school. They employed several, what I think are really smart strategies. One was they implemented deadline flexibility for high school students who were working to support their families or were helping to make sure younger siblings were doing homeschooling appropriately during the day. And she told me one really interesting story about helping one mother get a job closer to home so she could leave later in the morning. And make sure that her children were awake for remote classes. Getting children back to school during these tough times is going to require a lot of effort and strategy.
0: And do you think there's any chance of opening schools outside regular time, for example, during vacation to make up for some of the lost learning?
3: I do think that we could see COVID become an opportunity for America to revisit a lot of the things that we do that We haven't really challenged before, or if they've been challenged, they haven't really caught on. I think that includes shorter summer vacations, perhaps longer school days, um, employing uh, all kinds of strategies to make sure that students are learning. I actually really liked the story that I heard from Superintendent Bonser about really pursuing flexibility, and I hope that this doesn't stop with COVID.
0: Charlotte, John, this is an area where both of you have some lived experience, as the phrase goes, over the past year, having homeschooled your children a fair bit. I'm not sure that American parents of school-aged children fully realise quite what an outlier America has been since COVID-19 came along. Most countries in Europe have made every effort to keep in-person learning going, even while pretty much everything else has been closed. America has taken a very different path.
1: It's funny because both with the distribution of vaccines and with decisions about schooling, it's just been very much pushed down to the local level. And one could argue that that is due to a justifiable judgment that local officials have a better sense of infection rates on the ground, and they're better suited to respond to their local communities or something like that. It also, I think, very much has to do with an abdication of responsibility on the part of governors, and under the Trump administration by by Trump, who just kind of threw up his hands and said, this isn't my decision to make, I'll let you guys deal with it. I was struck by some data that was in an article that we ran recently, that showed that in a study of 10,000 districts by Brown University, that local infection rates had little to do with whether a school district offered in-person learning or remote as of the the start of the school year back in August, and that what was much more of an indicator of whether schools opened or closed was was local politics, and that areas that supported Hillary Clinton in 2016 were a lot less likely to offer in-person schooling than those that had voted for Donald Trump. And that was even after controlling for the density of the population, and and so forth. So I think that that does convey how the conversation about schooling, as with anything else, has been politicized, and also about trust. I mean, there was a real trust gap that had to do with advice coming from the federal government, um, as well as different advice from local officials. I think it was hard for some Democratic districts to say, you know, we believe President Trump, we think it's a great idea to open schools, that didn't feel like that was something that parents necessarily would go along with. And then conversely, um, in some Republican areas, if the president said it was okay, they absolutely wanted to have their schools open. And you saw that, for instance, across Texas. So I I was really struck by that and how, unlike in, in many European governments, where it seemed both more centralized and a bit more science based in America, it's just been so political.
2: I think that's absolutely true back in i think august or september when it was still warm enough to hang out in the backyard with friends in an appropriately masked social distance way a a conservative friend of mine said you know you watch if joe biden wins the conversation over school reopenings is going to get really different really quickly and of course most people there were Biden supporters and said of course not we're going to be led by the science that's a cynical thing to say but, of course, case levels are much higher here now. I'm in upstate New York, in a village in upstate New York. Case levels are much higher here now than they were back then. And a lot of people are really anxious to get schools reopened. And they see, you know, what's happening overseas, where most people have gone back to school. My kids are in public school. Friends of ours who have kids in private schools. Their kids have been able to go back because they can test regularly. So it, it, it is, as Charlotte said, a political decision more than it is a science-based decision. And there's just been an abdication of responsibility on the part of governors and other officials who might be expected to perhaps take on teachers unions in what is an uncomfortable fight for Democrats, but I think a necessary one. It's also interesting that the Biden
0: administration came in with this plan to get schools largely reopened within the first 100 days. And now, not quite a month into the presidency, the administration has already scaled back those ambitions pretty dramatically i mean there's a to charlotte's point about local control in american schools i think it's not clear that this is something that's in the president's gift but even so something that looked pretty straightforward when he came into office i think the administration has discovered already is a really really hard one
1: part of that is because biden's plan to reopen schools as you say is contingent on local local control and different infection rates and all that. But it also is because he wanted to spend a lot of money to help open K to 12 schools as part of his stimulus. And that was 170 billion for colleges and universities and K to 12 schools that could be used towards things like having smaller class sizes or improving ventilation, um, hiring more janitors, allowing greater social distancing for students and teachers. And that is all tied up now. I mean, there's not been much progress yet on trying to get that package through And Republicans see this as a really good wedge issue for them, that you can blame Democrats as being pushovers um, to union interests. And that is something that they think will play well, and indeed it may.
2: I think the current plan is what, that he's gone from saying he wants schools to be reopened in 100 days to saying that if the majority of schools teach one day a week in person by the end of 100 days, he will consider that a victory, which is pretty scaled back. I mean, even up here, my, my kids are half days of in-person school and they have been for, for several months. But that's really not enough. And I fear a lot of the sort of knowledge loss that accrues with complete online schooling also accrues with just partial schooling. Okay,
0: thank you both. We'll find out what all this disruption may mean for students in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash Pod. Our cover this week argues that COVID-19 is likely to become an endemic disease and discusses the consequences of that. There are also pieces on cult CEOs and alien life this week. Two separate pieces, those I should add. Sign up for the Economist This Week email to get all of those. Economist.com slash USpod is the link to subscribe. That's in the notes for this episode. One of the side effects of school closures has been the disruption of academic testing. Two-thirds of all four-year colleges and universities in America dropped test requirements for entry this year. It's a chance to rethink how tests are designed and think about how earlier attempts to extend educational opportunities have misfired.
4: Every day, each one of us comes in contact with many different kinds of people. We observe them, react to them. We make judgments about them. They make judgments about us.
0: The history of mass testing in America goes back to World War I, when IQ tests were administered to Army recruits.
4: This girl is really attractive.
3: He's certainly pretty sure of himself.
0: A Princeton psychologist named Carl Brigham worked with the Army and saw potential for adapting the test for college admissions. His scholastic aptitude test began an experimental rollout in 1926. In 1933, James Bryant Conant, the new president of Harvard, launched a scholarship program intended to end the monopoly of Eastern boarding schools on the supply of students. Conant enlisted the help of Carl Brigham. His test promised to measure pure intelligence, regardless of the taker's background. Harvard soon persuaded other colleges to start using the SAT, and by the end of World War II, the test was on its way to becoming the basic college admissions device for millions of Americans.
4: In considering validity, it is necessary to ask whether the test actually measures what it professes to measure.
0: But the SAT has not solved the problem of equity in college entry. Carl Brigham, its inventor himself attributed the so-called decline of American intelligence to African-Americans.
4: Say that a particular test has been standardised on a group of students predominantly urban, low-income, foreign population, male.
0: Recent studies have shown that standardised tests are better at reflecting household income and parental education than predicting the success of students in college classrooms.
4: The group of students to be tested least suburban middle income level, with Anglo-Saxon background, and with boys and girls equally represented.
0: The Brookings Institution think tank has shown how gaps between white and black Americans in SAT scores help to transmit racial inequality across generations.
4: A test with such a norming group would not be suitable for use with this group of students, since the two should have comparable characteristics.
0: Presidents from Reagan through to Obama have had variations on policies that withdraw federal funds for schools when test scores are poor. At a time when racial equity is at the top of the political agenda, all this raises big questions about the way America's students are tested. If SATs can be proven to be racially biased, then even awarding jobs based on test results raises legal questions, for example.
4: But some situations require objective, systematic assessment of abilities or aptitudes.
0: Like many chapters in the history of education, the SAT story is one where ideals and outcomes remain at odds.
4: The standardized test is a technical tool which every teacher should understand and be competent to use.
0: John, this feels like a somewhat familiar story in American education and in American life to some extent, that things that are often set up or intended to be tests of pure merit, you know, race blind, class blind, etc, can sometimes end up being, you know, vehicles instead for parents to transmit their advantages from themselves to their children.
2: That's right, and it's done with no sort of malice on the part of the parents, right? I remember I didn't take SAT prep classes, but I had parents with regular working hours who could spend you know, nights sitting with me as I took practice tests over and over again. Kids who come from a less stable background won't have that advantage, right? And so SATs, which were passed off as a test of pure merit, right, as a better system than having the elite schools just pick kids from good New England families who went to good Eastern prep schools, unintentionally sort of reified those inequities that they were supposed to solve. And you see that too with COVID. You know, you might have a view if you're from a certain neighborhood that of course everybody wants kids to go back to school, but that ignores that infection rates are higher in some areas than others. There are often schools that are in worse physical condition in some areas than others. If you want to make equity as much of a priority as the Biden administration does, you've got to take specific situations into account. You can't just rely on a single universal policy and expect everyone to follow it and expect an equal outcome everywhere.
1: One of the things that I think will be fascinating over the next year is not just how to get schools to reopen and how to deal with conditions in different parts of the country that vary enormously in that reopening process, but also how to deal with the after effects of having been remote for so long. You know, we always feared that students would not get as good an education as they would in school, but we have data now that proves that that is indeed true. The consultancy did a study showing that students in the fall had learned about a third less math and were reading at about a 13% lower level than they had expected prior to COVID and that there were disparities there between white students and non-white students with steeper losses for students who were non-white. There was another study done by one of the makers of standardized tests, speaking of standardized tests. And it showed that students did slide substantially in math, less so in reading, but also a lot of students just didn't take any tests in the past year. And so a big question is how you provide the support to help students catch up when schools do reopen. There might be some summer school, and Randy Weingarten of the teachers union of the AFT has been more open than perhaps some of her critics might suggest to offering additional schooling it's not clear whether some of what's offered would be, you know, strict actual regular school the way you might see in the rest of the year or whether it might be a different form of, uh, of remedial instruction or maybe something based more in the arts. There are all kinds of different ideas bouncing around. But that's a big area of focus is that not only do you have to let schools reopen, but you have to help students catch up. And how you help students catch up is going to vary a lot depending both on their experience over the past year of schooling and what happened with their results, as well as local resources, frankly.
2: That's
0: interesting, though, because it gets you back to measurement, doesn't it? I mean, how do you know whether children have caught up or not? You get back to kind of high stakes merit testing to some extent, right? And I think one of the problems with the debate about meritocracy, which I completely understand, is that it's quite easy to point out, as we have, that, for example, SAT scores and income of parents have become increasingly correlated. And so, to that degree, SATs seem like an imperfect measure of merit. But then, as I think lots of you know, schools and colleges are about to find out, the problem is, what do you replace those high-stakes tests with? It's really, really hard to come up with some alternative measure of merit that kind of captures people's you know true uh, sort of intellectual ability.
1: Well, I do think there is a difference between SATs and a lot of the tests that are now being offered across elementary schools and middle schools and you've seen over the past decade a huge amount of work by different institutions ranging from local school districts to the Gates Foundation thinking about how to broaden measures of assessment. So, one of the good things I think that's happened is that this is a very very active debate about how you properly measure students' progress, how to do it in a way that is more equitable than the SAT traditionally has been. I don't think it's a problem that is by any means solved, but it is one on which there's been a ton of work. And so part of the the issue is that you have to fall back on something, right, even if it's imperfect.
0: Thanks both. We will head to Chicago to discuss the politics of all this in just a moment. The most high-profile political standoff over school reopening has been in Chicago. After threatening to strike, teaching unions there have agreed a deal after weeks of back and forth with city authorities. It means elementary school children will return to class next month. Adam Roberts,
5: The Economist's Midwest correspondent, has been filling me in. Chicago's school system is the third biggest in America, and it's basically been closed down for any in-person learning for almost a year. It closed in March 2020. The spring was a a washout. The remote learning was pretty much a failure, despite efforts by the school system to dish out laptops and to improve internet connections for needy households. In September, the city tried to oversee the reopening of in-class learning, at least for some of the kids, but the unions blocked that. And that led to a period of ever more bitter recriminations between the city and the unions about when they could get the classes back open. Now, the debate going on in 2021 in Chicago has been entirely about reopening elementary schools, not reopening high schools. No one's talking about getting older kids back into the classroom.
0: Adam, the politics of closing or opening schools during the epidemic, during the COVID-19 epidemic, are often caricatured as Democrats, Democrats. Being on the side of keeping things closed and Republicans on the side of keeping them open. But in Chicago's case, this is a Democrat on Democrat fight, right? Lori Lightfoot's a Democratic mayor. She's having a real battle with the Chicago Teachers Union, which is also obviously sort of Democratic affiliated. So, so walk us
5: through how the politics of this work in Chicago. Yeah, Lori Lightfoot's a fascinating character in, in all this because she was propelled into the mayor's office as a fairly unconventional figure. First of all, her profile is distinct. She's the first African-American lesbian mayor uh, in Chicago. She is from the Democratic side, of course, but she's not a a favourite of the unions. The unions were backing her opponent in the mayoral election. And from day one of her time in office, she was seen as a target by the unions. So within a few weeks, they had called a very big strike, a two-week strike, and she was forced to concede quite generous conditions in exchange for there being a promise of no more strikes for another five years. And then here we were, not that long afterwards, seeing the the unions ready to go on strike again. The politics is difficult. The unions in Chicago are rather popular. There's class solidarity. They've been around since the 1930s. The teachers union is not just interested in education, but it cares about many aspects of how do People live in Chicago, so it's got views about housing, health, how capitalism works. So it has a more ambitious agenda than just a narrow specialist trade union. Adam, when Donald Trump was in office, the Democratic coalition often looked
0: pretty unified in opposition to him. Chicago is a really interesting example because it shows the many fault lines there are within the Democratic Party, which is made up of all these competing interest groups. Do you think there are lessons here for for Joe Biden as he's recently become the overall manager of this rather fractious coalition? Yes, I think
5: there are lessons. What we've seen just happen this week is a deal being struck. So we had the teachers voting overwhelmingly on Tuesday night to go back into the classroom now, a deal struck between Laurie Lightfoot and the union uh, to do four things, which really probably stands as a model for what the rest of the country might try to do. So the first thing is You're gonna have a faster reopening than the unions wanted, but a slower one than the city wanted. But crucially, that allows you more time to vaccinate teachers. And so this was a long running demand of the unions that you start giving vaccinations to the teachers so that they're protected. You're also gonna allow teachers to to volunteer to go on unpaid leave. So if they don't dare go back into the classroom, they're not gonna be punished for that. They just won't get paid. So you're giving the individual responsibility to the teacher. And the fourth thing is sort of local democracy. They're going to form these local committees which will be allowed to decide when to reclose that particular school. So it's a more flexible response than either the unions or the city were pushing even two weeks ago. And that flexibility has to be a model that other bits of America could copy.
0: Charlotte, you're a former resident of Chicago and Midwest correspondent for The Economist. How unusual is Chicago's situation when it comes to school closures?
1: Chicago is unusual in some of the respects that you heard Adam describe, in particular the the consistent striking of city teachers. that, That is unusual. But one thing that I've been struck by is how common it is this time around to see Democrats really battling with Democrats over this issue of school reopenings on a local level. In San Francisco, the city attorney, Dennis Herrera, and the mayor, London Breed, said that they were suing the San Francisco Unified School District for failing to come up with the reopening plan that met state requirements, end quote, and said that the plans were inadequate and that the city had offered resources and all kinds of help, um, including public health expertise, logistical expertise, and that the San Francisco Unified School District wasn't responding in an adequate manner. So I was really struck by that. Um, And you see that elsewhere in California with an L.A. City Council member saying that he wants to introduce a resolution to order the city attorney to file a lawsuit copying the San Francisco lawsuit. So this is not something that's just happening in Chicago. You do see this tension playing out within cities that are controlled by Democrats across the country.
0: Yeah, and San Francisco's Unified School District has also attracted notoriety recently for renaming some of its public schools, ditching names like Lincoln uh, on the grounds of, I don't really understand the grounds actually, so I can't really explain them. Uh, And that has been catnip to uh, Republicans who think, or or at least would like to portray the Democrats as a bunch of kind of crazed leftists.
2: John Fatsman, what do you make of the politics of all of this? If I were a Republican political consultant, I would be salivating over all of this. I think that it provides Republicans a possible way to get back some of the suburban voters who left the party over Donald Trump. In 2022, Donald Trump is not going to be on the ballot. Um, but if, if, if students are not back in school by then, then it becomes a real issue uh, that I think they can use to woo some of those people back. I mean, if students aren't back in school by 2022, we may also have you know, it may also signify bigger problems. Um, but I, I, I would think that this is the beginning of a, of a narrative that Republicans are going to try to build on heading into next year's midterms.
1: I think that that strategy, as you say, that Republicans are sal- salivating over this as is an issue. You saw that in an editorial from the Wall Street Journal's board this week that said the teachers union roll over Biden. And that's kind of what we always um, expected in general terms that we would hear from Republicans during the Biden administration, during the campaign, they always wanted to portray him as someone who was weak and who would be overrun by uh, left, leftist interests within the Democratic Party. And so the clash with the teachers union plays into that. And I noticed that uh, you know, Mitch McConnell this week was talking about how science is not the obstacle. He said federal money is not the obstacle. The obstacle is a lack of willpower. He wants to portray Biden as weak, but it's not just McConnell. Roy Blunt, who people may recall as playing a big role in Biden's inauguration, he introduced a a budget amendment this month to withhold COVID relief funding for schools uh, that insist on teachers being vaccinated before they will reopen. So it's not just the most rabid Republicans who are looking at this as an important issue. uh, It's Republicans across the board.
2: Yeah, I think Adam's point about the flexibility of Chicago school, that agreement that they reached that allows a degree of flexibility is well taken. It's not an open or closed. I mean, you don't have to forgive the pun, but forgive the pun. It's not an open and shut issue, right? The default should be openness, I think. But there should be some way for schools to shut if COVID cases spike and then reopen sort of slowly as they start to go down.
1: And I also want to say just to to have a, a note in teacher's defense that these schools are usually very crowded. The ventilation mm. in these schools is very poor. You know, it's not an easy choice to go back into school. So I think it's it's not totally straightforward, but it has become evident just how big the costs are of keeping schools closed.
0: There's also this big racial divide that we've discussed briefly in the polling among parents of who wants their children to go back broadly you know white uh, americans are keener on their children going back to school than african american and hispanic americans are which seems odd until you consider that also covid-19 has killed african american and hispanics at, at higher rates and so that begins to make sense i was talking to tamara about this a couple of days ago and you know she not only knows a lot more about schooling in america than i do she has a phd in education policy and she taught in a public school district in New York for a while. So I pay a lot of attention to her thoughts on American schools. And she was saying that in the district that she taught at, uh, the school was so bad that, frankly, there wasn't a whole load of learning going on there anyway. And that she could well believe that some of her students would learn better at home in a less disruptive environment. And so that put an interesting spin on it as well. I mean, I think that's something she's going to be exploring in a a future article, just to see if the disruption that COVID has wrought to American schooling, which seems like a pretty bad thing overall, right, both for students and for parents, whether there might be some upside in terms of more flexible models of of schooling uh, in the future. Well, before I let you get back to your sledding, Charlotte, uh, I have a quiz for you. The Economist reported on President Eisenhower's cabinet appointments in November 1953. The paper drew its readers' attention to the woman who had become America's first secretary of education. Oveta Culp-Hobby's appointment was a graceful tribute to the importance of the woman's vote, we wrote. Hobby was only the second woman ever to serve in the cabinet. Who was the first and what job did she do?
1: That is a great question to which I don't know the answer. We are getting concerned notes from people saying that they think the quiz is rigged, that John Fasman knows the answers in advance to which I can say, I'm just that bad. And then the second line of questioning is basically wondering about my emotional health (laughs) and is it okay that I lose so often should there be broader concern And I can tell you that this is not winning or losing the quiz is not how I judge my own value. And I have many other talents, mainly things that are useful, like holding my breath underwater for a long time. That's pretty much the only other one I have, but don't worry.
2: Reporting and writing too. Those are pretty high up. I don't know. I think you've got The Economist
0: cover story next week, Charlotte, which is one of many you've had recently, so I'm not taking any of that. But how long can you hold your breath for underwater out of interest?
1: I have a weirdly low heart rate, so I can swim many laps underwater. At some point, I'll challenge you and defeat you in this.
0: OK, that's, uh, you're on. All right, well, back to the quiz. Yeah, I have uh, no idea. The first female cabinet secretary was Frances Perkins, and she was FDR's Labour secretary. A Kulp-Hobby, whose name I still can't quite believe, rose to prominence during World War II as director of the Women's Army Corps. WACs were the first women in the army, aside from nurses. They were employed mostly as clerks, mechanics, drivers and bakers. Upon deployment to Europe, they were issued with gas masks, canteens, first aid kits, helmets and pistol belts. What were they missing? Guns. They were missing pistols. General (laughs) Douglas MacArthur, who we covered in an episode back in June, called Wax his best soldiers. According to him, they worked harder, were better disciplined, and complained less than men. I believe it. (laughs) Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you both for being so uncomplaining. If you like the podcast, please let people know. And leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at economist.com. Look out for a brand new podcast from Economist Radio starting on Monday. It's called The Jab. Every week, it'll sift through the science, data and the politics behind the most ambitious inoculation programme the world has ever seen as it reaches its most crucial phase. You'll find that wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening to us. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.